You're listening to Climate Rising, an official podcast of Harvard Business School's Business and Environment Initiative. Before we get into today's episode, let me tell you about a new HBS online course called Business and Climate Change that we've just launched. In this five-week asynchronous online course, you'll learn the tools and tactics companies around the world are using to become more resilient to droughts, floods, wildfires, and storms, and how they're engaging in mitigation to reduce their emissions. This course enables you to leverage those insights to inform your own organization's strategy. Learn more and apply at the HBS online website or at hbs.me slash business and climate change. Now, on to Climate Rising. So our major insight was that corporations should be filing climate change accounts exactly as they file financial accounts. This is Climate Rising, a podcast from Harvard Business School, and I'm your host, Mike Toffel, a professor here at HBS. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Paul Dickinson, founder chair of CDP, a nonprofit that works on behalf of investors to call on companies to disclose their carbon emissions and climate impacts. Since its founding in 2000, CDP has expanded to seek data from corporate supply chains and from cities, and broadened its scope beyond carbon emissions to also include water and deforestation. I'll ask Paul about the origins of CDP and how it's become one of the most trusted sources of corporate climate data, and how CDP's data is used by investors and regulators. We'll also talk about the future of CDP in the face of new regulations and increasing corporate engagement in climate change. And as usual, I'll ask him to share the advice he gives to those interested in working at the intersection of business and climate change. Here's my interview with Paul Dickinson of CDP. Paul, thank you so much for joining us here on Climate Rising. Great to be with you, Mike. Thank you so much for inviting me. Can you tell us your involvement with CDP? How did that begin all the way back 20 years ago when you were one of the instigators of the organization? What was the idea and what was your role? I'm going to go a little bit further back, actually. So I recently turned 58. When I was 20 years old, I decided I wanted to kind of be a politician and I'd left school early, actually. I got into a university as a kind of younger, mature student of about 24 in 1988, and I was studying politics, but I left in the middle of my first term. Why did I leave? It's because I was also simultaneously working in an annual report design company. And so in 1988, I was looking at the annual reports of the world's largest corporations, and I got the idea into my head, which I think was correct, <laughs> that the power of national governments was declining and the power of corporations was increasing. So I continued working in corporate communications to learn more about corporations. But I did do a master's degree in 1997, uh, nine years later, set up by Anita Roddick, and it was in responsibility and business practice. Anita Roddick had founded The Body Shop, which was one of the most interesting global ethical businesses. And during my time from 97 to 99, doing this master's, I, I met a scientist who worked with James Lovelock, and I was introduced to the concept of climate change. And by the year 2000, I decided to spend the rest of my life working on climate change. I w connected with a lady called Tessa Tennant, who was the kind of mother of the responsible investment movement in the UK. She's a fantastic person who died in uh, 2018. But she and I got together through the summer of 2000, also with somebody called Jeremy Smith, and soon after by someone called Paul Simpson. And we cooked up this idea uh, for CDP that was originally called the Carbon Disclosure Project. We got a grant in, in January 2001, and that's when this concept we'd been working on actually became real. And so the concept of CDP is to work with investors to get them 
to ask companies in which they're investing to disclose how they're thinking about climate change as risks and opportunities, what their actual emissions are, what targets they have, and so on. Why did you go through the investor vehicle uh, as opposed to working with a consumer movement or with NGO movement? I mean, it was very important for us to be able to achieve absolutely gigantic global scale. Okay. Now, we couldn't do that by working with companies like saying to a company, hi, we want to work with you. We actually needed a process that could scale globally. And back to my epiphany, you know, when I was first looking at annual reports, what absolutely defines the global business system is the annual reporting of financial accounts each year. In the US, you report them to the Edgar database managed by the SEC. That data kind of decides what stocks are rising, which stocks are falling in value, uh, how you can access capital in the markets, you know, who's paying great dividends, who's got huge growth potential. So our major insight was that corporations should be filing climate change accounts exactly as they file financial accounts. But why is anyone going to do what we say, right? What authority have we got? So what we recognized was that we could start a not-for-profit organization, which, uh, as I said, is now 22 years old. It's just in its 20th annual cycle of reporting. And we could represent the authority of investors. And we use that word authority inside CDP because actually we represent basically two authorities now. The authority of institutional investors, and more recently we've been representing the authority of purchasing organizations. When we're representing investors, the first line of the letter, go to the chair of the board of the biggest companies in the world, originally 500 now, many, many more. But we, we started with the 500 biggest companies in the world. The first line of the letter said in 2002, when we first sent it, as investors with four trillion US dollars of assets, we require you to provide this information. And we listed the 35 investors. Fast forward to this year, and the first line of the letter said, as investors with uh, $130 trillion of assets, we require you to provide this information. It was 650 investors this year. But either way, it's quite correct that corporations should be reporting their greenhouse gas emissions, their strategy on climate change into a, a, a public interest organization, in this case, CDP. And then we make that available to the market through things like our website, cdp.net. Go and have a look yourself. Download the response from McDonald's or Coca-Cola or Toshiba, whatever you want. But also, most importantly, we sell that data to the Bloomberg Network, we sell it to MSCI, to Standard Poor's, it's kind of inside every environmental product. We met, Mike, because you wrote a paper in, I think it was 2006, maybe, something like that. And you, you were kind of a little bit surprised that we were achieving very high degrees of disclosure without the government or the law behind us. But the point being that it is entirely legitimate when you've got an enormous issue like climate change that the corporations should report on this. So let me just fast forward to 2021, which is the last full year of CDP. That was our 19th annual cycle. About 13,000 of the world's largest corporations reported directly into our databases. They represent more than 60% of global emissions. They represent more than 64% of global market capitalization. So it's a huge, huge group of companies. Um, about 3,000 of them reporting to their shareholders through CDP, and about 10,000 of them are reporting to their customers through CDP. Uh, and this is how we uh, managed to get reports from non-public companies. I'm just going to add in there that we've had a cities program for about 10 years, and more than 1,000 of the world's largest cities also report through CDP. 
But that's the basic idea. Okay, great. So back when I was looking at the data at the first time, I mean, I was intrigued because of the companies that CDP was approaching at the time, roughly half responded and half didn't. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting thing to try and explore. My observation over time is that within a particular company, as you ask them over time, the chances of them responding goes up quite a bit. Yeah. And therefore, like the S&P 500, it used to be a half, and now it's much higher. And yet you yeah. keep expanding the scope of who you're asking, other indices around the world, members of other indices, as well as now private companies and cities. And is that pattern continuing that you get maybe a low uptake the first year, but then every subsequent year, it's increasing in prevalence as to the the popularity of reporting. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. But I mean, it speaks to persistence delivering results. Perseverance works. I mean, I can think of a giant example of this, which is um, Walmart. You know, they didn't respond to us for the first couple of years. And then they responded to us and they, they started discovering amazing things. Like they were the largest purchaser of electricity in the US pretty much. And they they, they didn't, weren't negotiating on their electricity prices. Or they discovered they had more emissions from their refrigerators than they did from their truck fleet. You know, and it was actually an intern at Walmart. She had the idea of sharing this uh, extraordinary insightful tool uh, with the, with the supply chain of Walmart and that led to our whole supply chain activities. So it, it can take a while for companies, you know, I used to get a very polite letter from the management of the shipping company Mesk saying that they weren't going to respond to CDP. And then finally they did respond to CDP, 48 million tons of CO2, more than Denmark. Okay, the shipping company Mesk, the Danish shipping company's emissions are bigger than Denmark. So I met the chief executive at an event and I said, look, you know, thank you so much for responding. And he, he got some bad press. And I said, look, I'm sorry that there was bad press. And he said, no, it was exactly the right thing to do to respond to CDP. Because if you actually look now, Maersk is one of the global leaders in terms of decarbonizing the shipping industry. You know, one of the things that's been most exciting and positive for me to see is the degree to which we've got so much extraordinary political support. So, for example, I know the, the Secretary General of the United Nations has written introductions to our reports both at the beginning of her leadership and at the end, Angela Merkel either wrote the introduction to our German report or spoke at our German events. The last two prime ministers of Japan have spoken at our Tokyo events. Politicians understand that we represent the creation of new norms in society around this absolutely pivotal issue of climate change. And it's so exciting to be part of that unfolding process. And yes, back to your question, it does increase over time. On the one hand, because CDP is persistent and because investors are more and more interested in it. And I'm sorry to say, on the other side, not only do you have increasing civil interest in this, you know, from the children's strikes and all the rest of it, to, and this is the one that, that's really disturbing, extreme weather. Just before this call, I was looking, the BBC are warning us that Monday, Tuesday could be 40 degrees in London. We've never had more than 37 degrees in the history of measuring the weather. And of course, this is now going on all over the world. California burns, people drown in their basements in Brooklyn and trains in China. All of that drives us towards focusing on the corporate involvement in this critical issue. Got it. One of the things your Walmart story reveals, and it's a point that I think is underappreciated about CDP, I think folks at first glance think, oh, this is a decision about whether to disclose or not that companies need to make. But what I viewed CDP as doing is driving actual measurement. You have to measure before you can disclose. And so if a company fails to disclose, it might be they've got the data and just decide not to reveal it. But as many times, I think it's just they don't have the data yet. That's one of the reasons where I think it takes companies sometimes a couple of years of being asked to actually reveal the data is it took them a little while to figure out how to 
gather that data in a credible way that they can feel comfortable releasing those numbers with any uh, real authority that they might be traceable and legitimate. Is that something that you're seeing as well? I mean, it's super scary. You know, if you go right back, uh, CDP was a very small organization and it was my job to kind of phone the companies up and get them to respond. You know, they would say to me, well, look, you know, we, we don't collect this data. And I would say, yeah, that wasn't the point. <laughs> we didn't ask you if you collected the data. We asked you to collect the data. And this is one of the unique powers of CDP, which which I think is something I'm, I'm very proud of being part of building, is that we cause new data to come into existence. Back in the first ever CDP, I think it was the first or the second one, you know, that would be my cell phone number on the on the documentation. I got a phone call from a big logistics company that will remain nameless. <laughs> they said, look, you know, you made a mistake because we haven't got any emissions. And I said, you haven't got any greenhouse gas emissions? They said, no, we haven't got any emissions. I said, none. They said, no. I said, are you sure? And they said, well, only, you know, the vans, the lorries and the airplanes. But apart from that, we haven't got any emissions. And I said, well, why don't you just measure those? Huh. Yeah. Well, I think this brings up the point of like, which emissions do you want to focus on, right? Scope one, the on-site operations, scope two, the purchase of electricity, or scope three, to everything else in the supply chain upstream and downstream. What's the trend there? One of the things that made CDP possible was pioneering work before we began by the World Resources Institute and the World Business Council for Sustainable Development to develop the GHG protocol. And yeah. this scope one, two, three thing is absolute genius. Scope one, the fossil fuels you purchase. By the way, that's in your audited accounts already because you've got purchase invoices for it. Use of electricity, once again, in your audited accounts, you've got purchase invoices for that. And then, yeah, scope three, the Wild West, everything else. But I mean, you know, it's good stuff though. You can get going with that. Yeah. So I'm imagining companies start with scope two even. That's like probably the easiest because that's purchase electricity. You just need to know a grid factor to multiply by your kilowatt hours consumed. And then scope one, not that much harder either. And then eventually they start plucking away at elements of scope three, the everything else bucket. Is that what you're seeing, that trend? Yeah, I mean, one of the easy ones on scope three to get your head around is your supply chain emissions. And the reason I say that is because we have a growing, I think more than 250 major companies, You know, we, we gather data from their supply chains. I was giving a little talk at one of our launch events and I said, who pays your supplier's energy costs? You do. <laughs> so it's perfectly legitimate for a company to require data on its greenhouse, the greenhouse gas emissions from suppliers. I mean, we used to be called Carbon Disclosure Project. Now we're called CDP. We could have been called the Total Cost of Energy Management Project. You can say it's greenhouse gas emissions. I'm very worried about climate change. And you should be. Or you can say energy is a cost we need to manage like any other cost. And by the way, we're bringing a bit of discipline and order to managing that cost. The other one to look at is, for example, product use and disposal. And here, actually for decades and decades, people have been winning, increasing margin, winning market share by having more efficient products. You know, a classic example right now, you know, gas prices so high, uh, you've got a more efficient vehicle that you're selling than, than a comparative one, you're going to win. Uh, electric vehicles suddenly you know, look far less expensive than petrol vehicles when you're looking at gas prices the way they are at the moment. So this kind of like get ahead of the technology, get ahead of the price, come up with better products, innovate. This is all part of the way CDP delivers value to the market. So CDP has been increasing the amount of information they've been asking over time. They initially were asking about 
emissions levels and reduction targets and qualitative narrative around how's climate change going to affect your risks and opportunities. And I remember several years back, we talked about, well, it's interesting to know what they're doing in terms of their operations and their supply chains. But meanwhile, some of these companies are lobbying for and others against climate policies. And CDP added some information that they requested companies to reveal about their political strategies through their own strategies and through their trade associations. Can you talk a little bit about that and what the uptake on that information has been? We get a lot of information um, now because we've been asking about these, these sort of say political questions for, for about 10 years. It is absolutely critical to the whole climate change issue. And I'm going to give you a very practical example. Back in 2002, American Electric Power reported to us about 150 million tons of CO2. I checked last year, actually, and they reported about 137 million tons of CO2. So it's been kind of, you know, floating down from 150 million tons to 137 million tons over 19 years. But it's a big number. Pretty much entirely through that period, it's been 100 and something million tons multiplied by zero dollars equals zero dollars. Right. So without taxation and regulation of greenhouse gas emissions, these data are interesting, but they haven't got the compelling force of high cost or high opportunity. So that's why the regulation and the the taxation and the political responses are absolutely critical. We're now at a point where you can see the EU is just going forward with major taxation and regulation of greenhouse gas emissions, feeling very comfortable with carbon border tax adjustments to protect our industry from paying a kind of carbon penalty. So we're going to be putting those taxes on US or Chinese goods that have no comparable levy on on greenhouse gas emissions. It's all kind of getting quite real now. That would be my point. But if you look at net zero targets, for example, or science-based targets, science-based targets require science-based policy. Net zero targets require net zero policy. There's no way industry can reduce emissions at 7% a year without the state causing the free-to-air greenhouse gas emissions to have costs necessary to get reductions. So you can look at the Supreme Court saying that the EPA can't regulate greenhouse gas emissions whatever, you know, the US is idiosyncratic, you know, it it does nothing for a long time, and then it it hopes it can follow fast. But the rest of the world is locked in responding to climate change at significant scale. Climate change is like the internet, it is getting bigger every year, it is never going away. Industry needs to learn to make money from it, or it's going to get eaten for lunch. And certainly, industries in Europe, industries in China, industries in Japan, are going gangbusters to build the low carbon solutions for the future. And I hope and believe US industry will, will catch up. But it's actually the government that decides if industry's got a chance. Well, it'd be interesting to see whether the policies evolving in the EU, where low carbon will convey a comparative advantage because it's being taxed, will actually change strategies, not just of European companies, but it should change the strategies of companies that are exporting into the EU. So that could easily have a spillover effect to even countries that don't regulate, whether that be China or the US or Brazil or so on. Just for those listeners who aren't familiar with border adjustments, can you explain how it works in both directions? So EU exports as well as, say, American imports into the EU? Well, I think there's not necessarily a penalty the other way. So let's just assume that to simplify the world down to the US and the EU. And let's say there's some, you know, reasonably carbon intensive traded product say glass or something like that. 
if European glass manufacturers have got to pay a pretty big cost for their greenhouse gas emissions from the energy used, then they will be protected from uh, imports of glass from, for example, the USA by having a border tax adjustment put on. And that's that's stopping uh, the US glassmakers who haven't got this tax from, from undercutting EU production. Conversely, EU glass manufacturers who are selling to the US would not expect to receive uh, any kind of penalty when exporting to the US. They might be hoping for some kind of subsidy from EU governments to support them offsetting their energy costs. You know, these things are new. And so I can't speak with authority about what's not happened yet. But you, you, you could see both. And I think that's where you're going. And you might know more about this than I do, Mike. <laughs> well, one of the interesting things about border adjustments going into the EU. So an American glass company is selling glass into the EU. It has to pay some proxy for what the carbon tax of a domestic producer in the EU has to pay. And what's interesting is that the EU collects that money. Yeah. Uh, if the US had a carbon tax, then the US government would be collecting that money. Yep. So in, in either case, if the EU puts a border adjustment uh, tax on products like that, the company in the US will have to think about whether they can compete on the basis of taxed carbon in the EU. And the big policy question for U.S. policymakers is, who should collect that money? Should we collect it or should we donate that to the EU government? And uh, it'll be interesting to see what that does to the political dynamics in the U.S. And it kind of answers itself. By the way, glass is probably a terrible example to choose, but let's choose aluminum, which is a perfect one. Very high energy, very transportable, not heavy, super expensive. The U.S. situation, I think you described very, very well. I just want to say something about the Indian situation. So it has been discussed that India, for example, is a developing economy, and it's pretty rich for the EU to, to uh, be taxing aluminum coming from India and then keeping that tax. I have heard it said that EU policymakers may be thinking of taxing that aluminum at the point of entry, but then hypothecating all of that tax back to India as grants to assist them in decarbonizing the Indian grid. So the U.S. rich nation, we don't quite know what's going to happen. I think you described it well. But in terms of avoiding penalizing emerging markets, they may well see those border taxes going back to the country to decarbonize. That's interesting. I hadn't heard that before. Let's talk more about what happens with the data that's collected. To start, CDP itself uses the data or the disclosure extent to create its own ratings. And traditionally, its ratings have been... Uh, they created a leadership index, and it's about how much disclosure the company has conveyed um, in the survey that CDP requests them to complete. That's what it was. Yeah. We we evolved it in the early uh, noughties into performance. Yeah. So can you talk about the evolution of that strategy? Well, very hard. You know? I don't think I'm betraying any secrets when I say that we were scoring on the completeness of disclosure. Yeah. And I remember somebody saying to me, so if I'm awful and I say I'm awful, I can get 100%. And it was kind of like, yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there is, a, there is a validity to that kind of disclosure, but it's not really helping people evaluate responses. So that component still exists in CDP scoring, but it's much smaller. You know, you, you, you have to be complete to be able to kind of, you know, move up the grades, you know, towards A, which is the highest from, from F, which is you didn't submit. You know, we were being advised at the time by PwC, and we had a you know very deep relationship with PwC for for many years. And um, we kind of said to them, "Look, 
it should be possible to move from scoring the completeness of the disclosure to scoring performance. And they were like, yeah, it's really going to be hard. And we were like, yeah, but it's kind of got to be done. And over two or three years, we trialed it, we piloted it, and then we introduced it. And obviously, we've been kind of evolving it ever since. It is very hard to evaluate corporations because they're big, they're complicated, they're multinational. And between corporate strategy A and corporate strategy B, no one can necessarily say today which one is the correct one. But we, we do the best we can to provide a performance score. But I think the most important thing we do is we give data to the market. So a whole bunch of other people can provide performance scores. You know, I mentioned MSCI, um, you know, S&P will put these data into their credit ratings. And indeed, you know, any analyst studying any company can think about this. And, you know, this notion of ESG is very interesting. If I was an ESG analyst, for example, in a, in a big fund manager in 2010, I would be running around telling all the auto sector fund managers that they should be looking at electric vehicles. But in 2022, I wouldn't be doing that because they're already looking at electric vehicles. So I, I mentioned that little story to show that we're talking about emerging investment themes and the CDP data feeds into the capital markets. So the capital markets can best come to collective judgments of these emerging investment themes. You know, we know about renewable energy. We know kind of about electric vehicles, but there are huge new sectors like food. And, and we could talk a lot about that. Yeah. No, I, I academics also try and develop schemes on how to rank and, and rate based on these data sets. And boy, it is complicated. You have to think about, are we comparing absolute or are we comparing some sort of normalized figure like per dollar spent or something? Because if you're just comparing absolute, well, then pretty much you're penalizing the large companies and giving a pass to the smaller ones. You have to think about, are we comparing within the same industry or across all industries? So are we ranking all companies from top to bottom or are we ranking within a sector like within the auto? And then you have to think about, are we doing scope one and scope or scope two or all these scopes and scope three, as we mentioned already, is the Wild West. So like the comparability questions are quite complicated there. It's a really challenging thing to do to rate performance. Are you measuring current performance or trajectories? Are those trajectories actually credible when people talk about their targets? That's another area which others are now taking on a rating process to say not just how are you doing now, but how ambitious are your goals and are you making uh, annual progress toward those goals? And part of that's using CDP data as well. And that's where the iterative process comes in, because on the one hand, you know, we can't be frivolous and change the CDP questionnaire every year. You know, when you've got 13,000 corporations reporting to you, you have to be very careful. But at the same time, for all the reasons you just described, I think the great power we have is to be able to iterate towards better and better supply of data as the market increases its sophistication, as it gets to understand what it really wants, we can then feed that into CDP. So yeah, we're, we're, we're constantly moving towards where we need to go. CDP has also diversified not only by asking directly companies to answer the questionnaire on behalf of investors. As you've already mentioned, you launched a supply chain project where you're now similar questionnaire, but asking on behalf of their large buyers. And then you're also doing this city program. 
And has this just decided, is this an evolutionary strategy that as you've been engaging with companies, they're like, hey, how about doing something quite adjacent? And then you're saying, yeah, that sounds like something we could handle. Is that how those conversations arise? I mean, it's all about money. You know, I work in an NGO and it's all about money. We could do so much more. The only thing that ever constrains us is money. You know, our, our income is is grown, but it's still pretty small, kind of 50 million US dollars we have about. We have to use that money to support about more than 500 people out of eight offices in the most expensive cities in the world. Plus, we have to pay for the, all of the IT you know, about half our money comes from philanthropy, half of our money comes from corporations and investors selling them services and data and all the rest of it. But I mean, you know, shout out to the billionaires listening or the hundred millionaires. You know, if we had some serious money dropped on us, we could do all kinds of things. You know, we've built the machine. The problem we have is the utility we deliver is really identical to the utility that's delivered, for example, by the SEC through the Edgar database or in the U to the UK government through what's called Companies House. Every single government with a developed capital market has somewhere that the financial accounts are registered. And by the way, 100% of them are funded by the taxpayer. So we've actually built the mother of all of these for environmental accounting, but unfortunately we've had to also go off and hustle for the money whilst every single very wealthy institution interested in climate change and ESG plunders our staff by offering them far more money. So, you know, it's very tough to run our organization, but there's no limit to the imagination of what we can do. You know, I'll, I'll now stop playing the world's smallest violin, but it's it's really executing on the potential of it in a not-for-profit structure. Now, you might say, well, why don't we flip to a for-profit structure? And the answer to that is, there is no incentive for the public interest to be served by a for-profit structure. That's why every single public interest registry of financial accounts in the world is funded by the taxpayer, because there is no business case for restricting information the market needs. Right. Now, you've diversified into water. You're collecting data on water. You're collecting data on forests. So if you had this extra hundreds of millions of pounds, what would you do? That's an absolutely great question. I mean, you know, the story of both water and forests are, are interesting. We obviously wanted to do them a long time ago. It was actually NBIM, the Norwegian government's sovereign wealth fund um, that funded us to do water originally and uh, continues to do so. Water security, as we call it. And uh, on forests, you know, there's an NGO called the Global Canopy Project that kept asking us to do forests. We said, look, we simply can't, but you can license our stuff for free. And if you can build something up big enough, then we can take it over. And that's what they did. And then that's what we did, right? You don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that we have significant problems with biodiversity, oceans, plastic, waste, actually as a, as a key sector, potentially, you know, the outputs are turning into the inputs. So we have well-articulated plans to expand into those sectors. That's the first place the 100 million would go. You look further down the line, there are actually S issues, social issues, so to say. Uh, there is a kind of social CDP called the Workforce Disclosure Initiative, which is run out of an NGO in the UK called Share Action. They have 173 big companies reporting through them with 12 and a half million workers. That data is freely available. So go look at the Workforce Disclosure Initiative. You can see a sort of a, the beginnings of an S. But I think if I stand right back and, and you know, you said to me kind of like, well, let me explain what sustainability is very simply because everyone thinks it's mysterious. It's not mysterious. I'm going to give you three big global issues and only one of them is sustainability. First big global issue, the COVID-19 pandemic. 
that's not sustainability because the government <laughs> locks us up in our homes, stops the airplanes flying. The second one is the invasion of Ukraine. That's not sustainability. You know, NATO bounces up, starts supplying weapons to Zelensky. That's not sustainability. Climate change. You look through the government like they weren't even there and you say, oh, your sustainability, right? So sustainability, as far as I'm concerned, is significant issues of concern to citizens, corporations, and the capital markets that the government can't solve. And I'm afraid to say it isn't just water, climate, and forests. So as we look ahead over the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you can clearly see that there will be legitimate areas where the capital markets, the global business system, if you will, wants to gather information regarding the performance of the corporation with regard to a key system condition. Biodiversity is a very good example. And here, CDP can evolve. So I, I hope that gives you a sort of sense of, of how we would travel through. And just by the way, to say that, you know, there's a lot of talk of the SEC is going to mandate some kind of basic disclosure, the EU may well do the same. We, of course, are in a position to remove questions from the CDP questionnaire when they become legal requirements in annual reports. So it's a kind of a process whereby CDP provides, we provide a massive regulatory impact assessment, whereby governments can then have the confidence to regulate, and we will then move on to the next area of data in a, in a constant dialogue with the purchasing organizations and the investors that provide the authority for the CDP system. Yeah, I was actually going to ask that next about uh, movements in institutions like SEC and the EU, and there's also the evolution of the TCFD in terms of standard setting. How are these all playing out from CDP's perspective? Is CDP contributing institutional knowledge to those groups to sort of help guide what they're asking? And then you just mentioned you'll sort of move on. If those become standard, then you'll do what beyond the standards as opposed to replicating the standards. Is that is what I'm hearing? Exactly. I'll give you like a little update on, on four things, TCFD, the ISSB, the SEC, and the EU. Great. On the TCFD, I mean, the genius of Mark Carney, governor of the Bank of England at the time, was to recognize that we were kind of doing a great job. And in his first major speech on this, when he talked about the tragedy of the horizons, he referenced what was then 5,000 companies reported through CDP. But he was kind of like, come on, government, this is our job. And of course, he's right. When the TCFD was formed, CDP was immediately supportive of it, part of it. Um, we put our Climate Disclosure Standards Board, which was our kind of accounting body, fully behind TCFD. And we supported them every single way we could. When their findings came out, when the TCFD gave its guidance in 2018, we redesigned the whole of CDP to ensure that we'd included TCFD. So essentially, all those 13,000 corporations that are reporting to CDP are essentially providing TCFD reports. So we love that. Now, if you come on to the next major development is... It's all a bit geeky accounting talk, but outside of the US, the accounting standards for most countries in the world are set by something called the IFRS Foundation or the International Financial Reporting Standards Body. They produce international accounting standards. And what's amazing about those standards is they're kind of in the legislation of many, many countries already. And you can change those accounting standards and it just changes the law in pretty much every country outside of the US. Inside the IFRS Foundation, a new body has been formed called the International Sustainability Standards Board, the ISSB. 
And of course, CDP loves that. And we showed how much we love it because we transferred our Climate Disclosure Standards Board into the ISSB. So they would have all of our experience. We, we launched that with the World Economic Forum in 2007, and we transferred it into the uh, IFRS in, in 2021. So, you know, it's 13 years of experience working with the big four on what part of CDP response should make its way into an annual report. So we're very excited about the development of the ISSB. And uh, as soon as they've got new standards, CDP looks wants to introduce them immediately so we can get pretty much most companies in the world reporting to them, most big companies, so then they feel more comfortable to make those into standards. Just say a little word about the EU and the SEC. They're both coming forward with strong reporting standards. We're very excited about that. We support it 100%. There can be quite a bit of pushback in the EU from industry. It can be that the SEC get kind of whacked by, uh, no, you don't. You know, we're very hopeful that those regulations will be coming in soon, but, you know, it can take longer than you might think. Yeah, even if they back down, I mean, how much pressure are institutional investors placing on companies to disclose even if the SEC doesn't follow through with its draft? Either because they back down or because the Supreme Court says, hey, that's too big for a regulatory agency to manage. We need laws first or something like that. Are the pension funds and the institutional investors, are they saying like, hey, we're getting this information from other venues like perhaps the EU? We want that same information before we're really ready to be comfortable to invest in you, U.S. companies. Well, I, I think you may remember in your paper back in the day, you quoted um, a chap called Barron from Stanford who talked about private politics situations of conflict in their resolution without recourse to government or law. Yeah, that's a very interesting concept, and I, and I, you know, I think you suggested CDP was a was a leading example of that. I would say absolutely right. I think we are. So we're in a situation whereby we're representing, you know, the majority of the capital markets, $130 trillion, all of those pension funds and all the big asset managers, we represent them all. We've got like 80% of the S&P 500 reporting on climate change into our databases. And that's been going on for years. You know, some of them have been reporting literally for 20 years. So which part of this does the SEC not get? I mean, it's true that there's a lot of money in US politics. Let's not forget that since the Citizens United ruling in 2010, there is unlimited money in US politics. So corporations can spend without limit to essentially stop the regulatory process. And of course, that's happening. So unfortunately, you know, we'll just kind of carry on representing a massive consensus of everybody getting on with real life. Whilst unfortunately, that you know, the US Congress tries to work out and the US Securities and Exchange Commission and the executive branch try and work out how to how to sort of deal with the fact that the biggest threat to national security is actually lobbying by the fossil fuel industry. I think one of the ways that the private sector can overcome that is if they not just make these lofty statements that say, please disclose this information to CDP or on your website or in sustainability reports or in your annual report. But if you don't, then we're going to walk away from this investment. Where the rubber hits the road is, is those types of decisions. And I'm not that familiar with examples where investors are going that far. Are you? Yeah, I think walk away from the investment, you know, the Wall Street walk. That's there somewhere. And there are quite a few examples of people who kind of ignored major climate change exposure, did not walk away from the investment and ended up losing a lot of money. But I think that before you get to the end of the line, we're selling the shares. 
you're a lot more likely to engage. I mean, we've got to remember like a third of the world is in indexes and yeah. you know, a lot of other investment management is near index strategies. So a sense of the terror of increasing volatility has caused basically everybody to be invested in everything and you know, nobody buys or sells anything anymore. Right? But we're starting to see shareholder resolutions more and more and more that are increasingly assertive regarding this. And yeah, it can be about reporting your greenhouse gas emissions, but you know, if you're really getting climate change wrong, the name on everyone's lips was engine number one tiny little hedge fund who made such a good presentation they got three directors on the ExxonMobil board. That kind of intervention of the active owner, I think, is the probably more relevant route to the achievement of disclosures and the change in corporate behavior than necessarily saying, oh, we're going to sell the shares and the cost of capital is going to fall so much that you're kind of bankrupt. That's that's not very fast or effective route. Right. CDP is transitioning from its long-serving CEO, Paul Simpson. You mentioned him earlier. What's new for CDP in the next administration? Do you have a sense of uh, a crystal ball of where CDP might pivot (laughs) now? It will be under new leadership. That's what a great question. I'm completely unprepared for, so I'll probably say something interesting. (laughs) Uh, I would say that it's so great to be on this podcast with your amazing audience and it's actually something I've been saying for, for 22 years, and Paul Simpson was saying, and, and here other people in CDP say it, you tell us where we should go, what we should do. You know, CDP is the most crowdsourced piece of infrastructure in the world. We are an NGO. We're extremely open. It's literally two decades people have been coming up to me and saying, you know what, Paul, you know what you ought to do is X, Y, Z. And I'm like, could you just write down X, Y, Z and put that in an email to me? And you know what? Very often it ends up being kind of what we do. However, having given that general answer, you know, the specifics of our strategy right now are to expand into these related environmental themes. And we're looking very seriously at plastics and waste, biodiversity, oceans, and air quality. We will look at other related issues We are also seeking to increase the ability of the CDP system to utilize technology. We would like to have uh, continuous emissions reporting basically through the CDP system. We'd like to be much more real time. We would like to be better at, at providing our data to people. We would like to continue to evolve around science-based targets, net zero pledges, supporting societies and investors moving towards achieving these goals. And yeah, we, we are very strong supporters of regulation. So we also kind of you know want to put ourselves out of a job. I mean, it's not going to happen, unfortunately, but we will be continuing to support um, regulators to make the CDP market-led disclosures into mandatory disclosures. That's likely to keep us busy for a very long time. But you know, the way we partner and who we partner with in the market to achieve our goals is something that's under permanent review. It's not too difficult to get hold of us. To be completely honest with you, Paul at cdp.net will work. So tell us. All right. Great. That's a great call for uh, crowdsourced ideas from our listeners. One of the questions we like to ask all of our guests is, and this is particularly pertinent for you because you've worked over these past 20 years with corporates, you've worked with investors, you've worked with policymakers at the local and national and international levels, and you're engaged in the NGO space. As you're thinking now about opportunities for those who are thinking about jumping into the business and climate change space, whether they be MBA students or folks who are looking to career switch, 
Where do you think the most exciting opportunities are and what resources might you have to suggest to them of how they can learn more about them? Okay, so two areas I'm going to mention on that I think are, are what's next. Um, I think the end game of ESG, particularly with regard to climate change, is actually taxation and regulation of emissions. Now is the time, actually, to, to think about, you know, these are regulation-driven markets. Think about the interface between the new laws we're going to have, direct taxes on greenhouse gas emissions, and the new business models, and who's going to gain, and how can you be at that nexus of... Uh, being in a company that does incredibly well through changed regulation. That, I think, is is, is probably going to be one of the key markets. And, and if you look at the unicorn, certainly we, we, we were looking, I was looking at a, a rating of unicorn companies in, in the UK, and about a quarter of them were climate change companies. I mean, this is this is a complete bonanza. Hmm. Uh, and I, I wanted to, I mentioned food earlier, but just, you know, just one thing I'm going to mention to you is food science, right? It's the opposite of cooking. You know, we've been cooking for thousands of years. Cooking is making the same things taste different. Food science, we've only been doing for a couple of years. It is making different things taste the same, right? But there is so much money and technology going into food science. And how would that link, for example, to taxation and regulation on grounds of health, on grounds of greenhouse gas emissions? The chief executive of Beyond Meat told me that if we took meat out of the food system, we would liberate 90%, 90% of farmland. I mean, that's just mind-blowing, right? That's one area, the nexus of, of corporate strategy, technology, and legislation. The other one I want to mention is the so-called S or social issues. And I think that the, the key here is to understand that it's not that the environment is separate to social, but they're actually the same thing. There's a, a famous quote by someone called Gus Speth, who founded NRDC and WRI, and he said, you know, 30 years ago, I thought our problems were biodiversity loss, climate change, uh, you know, desertification or whatever. I haven't got the quote exactly right. And he said, but, but with, with good science, you know, we'd, we'd be able to solve these problems. And he said, I was wrong. He said, 30 years later, what I've realized is, is our problems are greed, selfishness, and apathy. And to solve those problems, we need a cultural, and he said spiritual transformation. And he said, we scientists don't know how to do that. But I think there really are issues. It was really interesting when you were talking about the tax that might be levied either by the US government or the EU government on trade. Let's think about the response to climate change, which is inevitable, by the way, in terms of how policies work. Are we going to have tax, for example, removed from labor and put on resources and particularly emissions and pollution? That seems incredibly logical. But I think people have not yet managed to combine uh, their thinking about the environmental problem of climate change with the social issues, whether it's some coal miners or, or President Macron had his gilets jaunes protest because he was not taking the tax that was coming in and directing it to people on lower incomes. So it's both a, a kind of chemical, technical, physical problem, climate change, but it's also a deeply political one. And I guess in both of the things I've talked about that are the next phase of, of this movement are related to that political challenge. Yeah, so very multi-stakeholder problems where we need to think about the relationships between corporate strategy, the social sector, and government. So exactly. a complicated combination of topics and therefore good opportunity to do joint degree programs or uh, come back for uh, skill upgrading at your local university or, you know, millions of opportunities online now to gain skills in these other sectors as well. It is absolutely a moment for academia, for study, 
for enhanced understanding, for discussion, debate. We're doing something completely new here. And, you know, your great institution at Harvard, the leading intellectual institution in the world and many others like it, we need your capacity to grasp these holistic issues. The problem with the Enlightenment is that we learned more and more about less and less, and now we know everything about nothing, if you see what I mean. We need to grasp these complex interconnected issues, and I'm going to ground that rather lofty and ethereal statement in something very practical. We were producing investor research a while ago, and you know you get reports on electric utilities, or you get reports on the auto industry, or you get reports on the oil and gas industry. If you want to understand climate change, you need a combined report on all three. Because the car industry, the electric utilities, and the oil and gas industry are affecting each other in the moment with regard to the, the change in the, in, in to, from gasoline to electric on vehicles. It's that kind of integrated thinking that I think the universities, your great institutions, deliver, and we need it desperately. Great. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us on Climate Rising. I always learn a ton by speaking with you. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be with you, Mike. Thank you for your amazing work, and uh, great to have the opportunity to be with you today. Much appreciated. That was my conversation with Paul Dickinson, founder chair of CDP. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, share with your friends, and don't forget to rate and review. For show notes, head over to climaterising.org or click on the link in the podcast information. You've been listening to Climate Rising. I'm your host, Mike Toffel. Kate Zarenner is our producer, and Craig McDonald is our audio engineer. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Climate Rising. See you then.